verses. Our focus will be verses one through 18. And because this is the word of God, and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, if you are able, would you please stand? Deuteronomy 15, beginning in verse one and reading through verse 18, Moses writes as he's carried along by the spirit of God, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. And you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember, you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you, therefore I command you this day. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you, for at the cost of a hired worker, he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. Church family, the grass withers, the flowers, they all fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. There are several issues that any political candidate must address if he or she desires to effectively solicit the votes of the populace. One of those issues is the ongoing problem of human poverty. 
both within our country and even around the world. Any political candidate will answer the following question in some form or fashion. How should we respond to and mitigate the problem of human poverty? For this reason, political candidates will propose ways to, for example, increase job opportunities or prevent inflation or extend access to education and more ways to help fight against this ongoing and perpetual problem. Well, of course, as you might imagine, my goal this morning is not to talk about politics. My goal is to talk about the text in Deuteronomy 15. In this text, alongside of many other passages in Scripture, we discover that God has a deep affection and care for those impoverished, those who suffer from poverty. More specifically, actually, the Spirit of God through Moses asks and answers this question. How should God's people respond to poverty, in particular, among God's people in the land of Canaan? Don't lose sight of this. This is a particular context. In Deuteronomy 15, Israel, the second generation of the Israelites, actually, after they have come out of Egypt, are on the brink of entering into the promised land. And just before they enter the promised land, the land of Canaan, God is instructing them in how they are to conduct their life and their worship practices in the land of Canaan. And in our case, the question actually surfaces and is answered, how is it that God's people, as they are entering the land of Canaan, how is it that they are to respond to poverty, and in particular, poverty among the people of God? That's the focus of the text. And what we find, actually, I'm going to give you a kind of thesis first, and then we'll talk about how we're going to unpack this thesis. What we find in this text is that God's people were to respond to the problem of poverty by showing extravagant generosity for the poor. That was the response. Showing extravagant generosity to the poor. In fact, even generosity that at times might scare some and does scare some as we're going to see in the text. Scare some to the point at which it would be perhaps easier to sin than to show this kind of generosity. And there are specific ways this is done in the text, as we're going to see. Moreover, there are ways that this text informs us as followers of Jesus Christ, right? And so we're doing this as we're working through Deuteronomy, and I want to consistently revisit this hermeneutical challenge, that is to say, this challenge of interpreting Scripture and accurately applying Scripture to our lives. Because the reality is none of us in this room are second generation Israelites after having come out of the land of Egypt and about to enter the land of Canaan. None of us. If you feel that you are, actually, then come see me afterward. (laughs) And I can put you in touch with someone. Right? That's not who you are. You're, You're a 21st century, likely American, perhaps someone living right here in Pal or a surrounding area, Some of you are members here at First Baptist, pal. Most of you aren't even ethnic Israelites. I'm not. And most of you aren't. And so this is is the privilege, actually, of, of the exposition of Scripture. But this is also the privilege that you have as interpreters of Scripture who have the Spirit of God. That is to say, you're to read all of Scripture as Christian Scripture, but to refuse the temptation to take an Old Testament text and just kind of transplant it. You're used to me using that, that language. 
To uproot a text from its context and to transplant it into your context is to do an injustice to the text. And so there are ways in which we are to interpret Scripture, of course, through the coming of Jesus Christ and to ask the tough questions of how it is that this text actually informs us as followers of Jesus. Because, and don't miss this, if you're visiting this morning, you need to know this about the way I preach. I will preach Genesis to Revelation as Christian Scripture. All of it. Every promise in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line. All our blessings of his love divine. Every promise in the book is mine. However, there are different ways that each of these instructions become manifested in the life of the Christian. So for example, you know, whether or not to eat pork for the Israelite was easy. The Israelite was not to eat pork. And yet for the new covenant Christian, eating pork is permissible. But that isn't to say that the instruction concerning the Israelite diet is irrelevant for the Christian. And we've said this, you know this if you've been with us. What it is to say is that the instructions in the Old Testament concerning the Israelite diet, after they have been filtered through, fulfilled by and filtered through the coming of Jesus Christ, receive application in a different way. They're just as relevant. But they are applied in a different way than they were once applied by God's people, okay? So just keep all of that in mind, and we're gonna do some of that this morning, perhaps not as much as I would like to do every Lord's Day explicitly, but we're gonna do some of that as you're going to see. And here's how we're gonna do it. Two steps, two questions. If you're taking notes, two questions we're going to ask and answer this morning. First, how was Israel to show generosity to the poor? I've told you the thesis is that God's people were to respond to poverty with extravagant generosity. But how? How was Israel to show generosity to the poor in their midst? And we're going to walk through the text in order to answer this question. Secondly, we're going to ask and answer the question, how are we, the church, to show generosity to the poor? We shouldn't simply ask and answer the first question. We've got to also ask and answer the second question as interpreters of Scripture in Deuteronomy 15, okay? So how was Israel to show generosity to the poor? And secondly, how are we, the church, to show generosity to the poor? Well, let's begin by looking together at our first question. How was Israel to show generosity to the poor? Look with me at verses 1 and 2. At the end of every seven years... You shall grant a release. Notice that word, important word. Highly debated word, actually. I think this is a good translation. Release, remission, forgiveness. In fact, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament actually uses the word forgiveness here. So at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release Verse two, this is the manner of the release. Okay, here's, here's what we mean by the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not, notice this, exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. So one of the ways Israel was to show generosity to the poor was by granting remission during the seventh year from all debts accrued over the previous six years. That's astounding, isn't it? How do you like that? Every seven years, a do-over. 
Debts are wiped clean every seven years. If you're a member of God's household. Now to grasp what God is instructing of his people here, it is important to distinguish Israel's context from our context. And we're going to do a little bit of that here to better understand their context. For example, alone. Alone in Israel's context would not have been what we might call a consumer loan. In other words, when we consider loans, we oftentimes consider things like mortgages or or we consider, you know, car loans. We even consider things like furniture loans. I mean, so many different kinds of loans, perhaps even business loans. And the kinds of loans that we experience, we are not typically, we are not typically taking out the loan on account of necessity. We're not taking the loan out on account of needing to eat food and survive. We're taking out the loan on account of improving our experience in this life. It's a consumer loan, typically. That's, that's how we function through consumer loans. We take out the loan out of a desire for growth. So a business, for example, may take out a loan to grow. It's not oftentimes that the business takes out a loan to continue to exist, although that does happen. But oftentimes, businesses will take out a loan in order to grow. So these fall under the more, maybe broader category of consumer loan. It's not a technical term. It's just one that I've heard at some point, perhaps even made it up. I don't know. It's one of the privileges of preaching. You make up words. And then people think, wow, I've never heard of that word. You must be smart. And you don't know that I made it up in the moment. And some of you take notes on this. I know this. You've told me this. Some of you, the community groups have told me, actually there are community groups that ask the question, what was the word of the day? In Pastor Perry's sermon. Yeah, you've been told on. You have. I'm praying for each of you. Anyway, that's another subject altogether. In Israel's context, the only loans, now don't miss this. This is what you've got to understand. The only loans into which one would enter were loans of necessity. In other words, you took out a loan because you were going to starve to death. That's why you took out a loan. You took out a loan because you weren't going to be able to feed your children. You were going to have to eventually bury them. took out a loan because, you know, crops didn't come in. And the amount you were farming was a small amount. And when that happened, there wasn't a government that granted insurance money. Crops didn't come in and you didn't eat. So this was necessity. You need to understand this. That's the context of Deuteronomy 15. So there's a gap here culturally for us that we've got to recognize especially as we consider the ways in which this text applies to our context. God calls his people in our text to demonstrate generosity by remitting loans every seven years and and granting a kind of tabula rasa, that is a clean slate, every seven years. And this assumes, of course, that there are some Israelites that are wealthier than other Israelites. Okay, this was the case. It wasn't that everybody had an equal amount of money. If that were the case, no one would be loaning anyone else any money. 
No, there were some who were wealthier than others, some perhaps who were more prosperous than others for various reasons. Moreover, in fact, some commentators actually argue that in the text we find evidence of non-land-owning Israelites. These would be people who were, who were non-ethnic Israelites. People who weren't ethnic Jews, but actually had converted to faith in Yahweh. And that's possible. Maybe that's what's happening here. A number of possibilities in the text, but it's important for you to understand there were some Israelites that were in a position to actually help those who were in need. And when they did so, God instructed them, first of all, you should help them. Secondly, every seven years, wipe it clean. Extravagant generosity. And keep in mind also, I want to understand this text with you this morning. Keep in mind that in, at this point in Deuteronomy, what Moses is doing is he's slowly unpacking each of the Ten Commandments. And there's even an order to this. And so each of these commandments, the Ten Commandments that were mentioned back in Deuteronomy chapter 5, are being unpacked now at this location in Deuteronomy. Well, which commandment is... Moses unpacking in this particular text? What would it be? Look at your text. Deuteronomy 15. The translator may have done you a service. Maybe the translator gave you a subtitle. You have a subtitle in your Bible? Sabbatical year. Some of you have that. Others of you perhaps not. That's not original to the text. That's just the translational decision to kind of clarify what this text is about sabbatical year. And so this is, and I think it is, this is a chapter where Moses actually unpacks the implications of the fourth commandment, the Sabbath. Apparently, the Sabbath is not simply about resting one day out of every seven on Shabbat for Israel. Apparently, the Sabbath is also a call to grant financial rest to others. The Sabbath is a call both to rest in the Lord and be an instrument of the Lord's rest in the lives of other people. Tremendous, isn't it? God's primary concern in this text is with the poor among his own people. And we're going to get to some of this, but I want you to see this in the text. God's concern primarily is with his own household. Look with me at verse 3. Of a foreigner, you may exact it. What are we saying there? Every seven years, forgive the debts, all debts of the Israelites, those who have come into God's household. But if they're a foreigner, you can exact it. There's a distinction here. You'll have a hard time reading scripture if you don't understand that God consistently makes a distinction between his people and those who are not his people. So of a foreigner, you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, notice that language, your brother, your hand shall release. Israel's relationship to those who were not members of God's household was different than their relationship with those who were members of God's household. Of course, it isn't that Israel is not to care about other nations. In fact, we see an emphasis throughout the Old Testament on God's desire to reach the nations through Israel. But we understand this, don't we? You understand that my commitment to my children is greater than my commitment to your children. You would expect this. 
You understand that as you, you know, go to the mall and your children are doing something and you feel a sense of responsibility to your children and you see other children doing something, you don't feel the same sense of responsibility for those children. Well, you find the same subtle distinction and sometimes not so subtle distinction between God's household and those who are not in his household. The familial language of brother is used six times in this chapter. Six times. Some translations opt for the translation fellow Israelite. I I prefer brother or sister. Brother and sister, maybe. Because the term is elastic, and we actually see that in the text. Verse 12, for example. Notice verse 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, see that? Evidently, the term brother can be applied to both men and women. It's just a familial term. These are family members in the household of God. And this is the emphasis in the text. Back in chapter 12, verse 31, we began to see a clear demarcation between those who are God's people and those who are not God's people. And this distinction continues in our text. There is to be a difference And that difference, and don't miss this, that difference is to bear testimony to God's mercy and grace. And that difference itself is to be a kind of convincing call to others outside of the household. This sounds very similar, doesn't it, to John 13 where Jesus says, this is how others are gonna know you're my disciples. How does he say? Your love for one another. That is to say, when the church takes care of its own, it serves as a convincing testimony of the grace of God in Christ. And it serves as a clarion call, an exhortation, an invitation to the world that exists outside of that love to come into that love through faith in Christ. So in some sense, it is exclusive. In some sense. On the other hand, it's inclusive. We invite all to come in. Everyone who will trust in Jesus Christ and come into the household of faith, we will embrace. And and in the text, I don't think the exclusivity is on the basis of ethnicity. We've seen this a couple of times in Deuteronomy already. The exclusivity is on the basis of those who are in the household of faith. Some of them, many of them are ethnic Jews, but there are others. There are others who are non-ethnic and yet they've placed their faith and their trust in Yahweh and they've entered God's household. And so that's the emphasis in the text. And this also, by the way, so many facets here. This is not an easy text. You, You know that as we read it. But we shouldn't be afraid of these kinds of texts. This is the word of our Father to us. Understanding that there is a distinction between God's people and those who are not God's people in the text also makes sense of the last few verses, which we're not going to unpack, verses 19 through 23, where God makes a distinction among the animals. It's another way to highlight God is distinguishing And he's distinguishing his people from those who are not his people. Furthermore, he also distinguishes those animals that are slaughtered for sacrifice and those animals that are slaughtered for common food. And I think that's why those few verses appear at the conclusion of our chapter. 
Well, let's keep looking. There's a tension between verse 4 and verse 11. Look at verse 4 with me. There will be no poor among you. How about that? There will be no poor. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. Now look with me at verse 11. There will never cease to be poor in the land. How about that? I hope you enjoyed this kind of tension. First of all, Moses didn't forget what he wrote a few verses prior. That's silly. Moreover, God doesn't contradict himself. But there's a tension here, isn't there? On the one hand, there will not be poor among you because I'm gonna bless you in the land. On the other hand, there will never cease to be poor in the land. In fact, Jesus quotes this. So, how do we resolve the tension? There are a couple of facets here. On the one hand, I think this tension appears as a promise. Although there will be poverty, God's people are to consistently relieve such poverty through generosity. That's the point. There will always be people impoverished, but that poverty should never be debilitating because God's household is functioning as God's household should function. And this happens through the obedience of God's people. So that's part of it. I also think though, and I love this about reading the Old Testament. I also think that this is a tension that doesn't really get resolved until the new covenant. There won't be poor in the land. There will be poor in the land. And then this tension is resolved because there was indeed poor in the land. And then we get to a passage like Acts chapter four, verse 34. And you don't have to turn there. Let me just jot that down. Acts 4, 34. Where concerning the new covenant church, we read this description. There was not a needy person among them. Why? For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. We're reading this like Christians. Built into Deuteronomy 15 is a tension and a promise that doesn't get resolved until Christ comes. In other words, this isn't finally about the people of Israel dwelling in the land. This is finally about God removing the problem of poverty among his people. And he begins to do that in fresh ways through the church in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. This, of course, climaxes when Jesus Christ returns and poverty forever is abolished. Because poverty really is, by the way, brothers and sisters, poverty really is a sign, a signpost, a symptom of the presence of sin. Poverty resulted from the fall. And so the new heavens and the new earth will be a place where there will be no one who's impoverished. Now, the degree of generosity God demanded of his people in the text could easily lead some to refuse to loan money to those in need because they were nearing the seventh year. You saw that perhaps as we read through it. We're gonna do a little bit more here and then we're gonna ask our second question. So bear with me. God warns about this posture in verse nine. Look at verse nine with me. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say the seventh year, the year of release is near. Okay, I see a brother in need. 
I see a sister in need. I see someone who doesn't have what they absolutely need to survive, and yet the seventh year is coming. Which means if I loan them money now, I'm going to lose it. Right? That's what that means. And the text goes on to say, your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you'd be guilty of what? Sin. This is sin. Why is it sin? Because it doesn't belong to them. That's why it's sin. It's sin to withhold because finally and fundamentally, it doesn't belong to the Israelites. It belongs to the God who owns all things. And so what they're doing when they withhold these possessions from a dear brother or a dear sister in need of the necessities of life is they're saying, God, I will not use what belongs to you to bless your people. I thought about that this week and I thought, Lord, how often do I forget that everything I have is a stewardship? everything. Paul will say it this way, 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you haven't received? That's a rhetorical question because they knew the answer. And so, properly, I'm not to look at in my bank account, I'm bridging the gap a little bit already for you, aren't I? Sorry. Getting ahead of myself. I'm not to look at my bank account as my bank account. Or my house is my house, or my cars is my cars. I'm, as my life. I'm not to look at my life as my life. I've been bought with a price. And therefore, God in his mercy calls me to glorify God even with my body. I don't even own this. I own nothing. God owns everything. And in his mercy, he's granted to us stewardships. And so it's sin. It's sin when we refuse to use what belongs exclusively and fundamentally to God for the purpose for which he's entrusted those things to us. And we're going to see a little bit more of this here in just a few moments. Conversely, I want you to notice the image used at the end of verse 11. When we realize that everything belongs fundamentally to God, verse 11, you shall open wide your hand to your brother. Do you see the imagery there? This is not the imagery, right? Open wide your hand to your brother. What happens when I'm holding something like this? Someone can easily pluck it out. So often though, and this is the image used in scripture, so often we're tight-fisted when we see someone in need because finally and fully we believe what we have, we've earned fundamentally. It's ours. No one else's. And so conversely, God calls his people to open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. This posture can only grow out of a realization that nothing we have is properly owned by us, okay? I'm convinced of that. At least I find it in my own life. 
boy, I want to get ahead right now. But I won't. We'll get there in just a few moments. Before we turn to our second question, there's one more thing I want to deal with. And it's perhaps one of the more challenging portions of this chapter, especially read in light of our cultural climate. I want you to notice the instruction of verses 12 through 18 concerning Hebrew slaves. You see that? God here instructs concerning slavery. This isn't the last time we're going to see this. We can see this both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But in this particular case, and we're going to stick to this particular text, this is not the kind of chattel slavery on the basis of ethnicity more commonly practiced in American history, okay? So that's important for you to understand. We're still talking about this divide culturally. And so don't think American slavery as you read through Deuteronomy 15. This is what many have called indentured servitude. That is to say, slavery that is the result of a consensual commitment and vow. When someone's debt became insurmountable, the debtor could enter into an agreement for a period of time to work off the debt. And it's more than just being employed, however. It is slavery. And in fact, later on, one of the ways that God actually encourages the one who's releasing the slave or the slaves is by saying, look, you've gained this person at the cost of a hired worker and you've received their work 24 hours a day. They lived with you. They worked hard. They worked harder than a typical hired worker would have worked. And so it's more than just employment. This is slavery. But what would happen is this particular person had experienced this insurmountable uh, uh, debt, rather. And in order to work off that debt, they came to an agreement with the one who was the creditor or loaning the amount for the debt. And the agreement went something like this. Okay, I'm going to serve you as your slave for the next so many years. I'm going to live with you. I'm going to work for you. And I'm going to work off this debt but there are a couple of facets that you need to see. What God does is he enters this unideal situation. He enters the unideal of poverty. He rescues someone out of poverty through this institution. Moreover, he puts measures into place that mitigate the ongoing abuse of someone in that position. For example, it was limited to no more than six years, as verse 12 indicates. This either means from the point of the agreement, it can only last six years, or it means it's just going to follow the sabbatical cycle. Every seven years, there was a year of release, and if you were a slave on account of your debt, what would happen? You were set free. And you're not just set free, but in the text, God actually instructs those who were the owners of the slaves and the creditors to, hey, go open up your storehouses and provide for them. Don't expect them to get off to a fresh start without any foundation. So, so open up what you have and give generously to them so they can start afresh as free people. This is generosity. Secondly, I want you to notice something. The assumption in the text is that to be a slave within the household of God was to be loved and cared for. Perhaps more so than you would have been as a free person. Notice verses 16 and 17. 
But if he, that is the slave, if the slave says to you, I will not go out from you. So the seventh year comes and you say, well, you're free. And the slave says, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you. Don't miss that. In other words, being a slave with you is better than being free without you. The relationship this creditor slave owner was to have with the debtor or slave was to be so characterized by love that it was a joy and a delight to enter this relationship. That's foreign to us, I know. It's foreign. But when you're talking about whether or not you're going to eat, when you're talking about looking into your baby's eyes and knowing that in the next few days they will not survive because you don't have water for them, And then you enter into this kind of relationship in which you are a slave to a benevolent and gracious and loving master. Sometimes you choose slavery. Now I know that that is absolutely abhorrent to us because of the kind of chattel slavery on the basis of ethnicity that characterized American history. That's not what's happening here. And this is not the ideal. Okay, the ideal arrives when Christ returns. But this is God in his mercy condescending and making certain that those who are in poverty and can't get out are taken care of, especially within his household. And then he goes on to say, by the way, if this slave wants to stay with you, get an awl and run it through their ear into the door of the house. Some say, well, this is barbaric. I've watched parents hold their children down while their ears are pierced in civilized 21st century American culture. I heard Al Mohler say that even recently as I listened to a sermon that he preached on this. This is a kind of ear piercing, okay? They're not losing their ear. It's a kind of ceremony to demonstrate commitment to this household. And to run it through the ear into the door is to say, I'm committed to this home. I'm committed to this family. And they were to become part of the family at that point. The basis for all of this generosity, we've spent far too long here, but there are so many facets of this text. The basis for all of this generosity is stated in verse 15. I want you to notice this. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. In other words, God's generosity to Israel in redeeming them out of Egypt was the basis for Israel's generosity to others. Their redemption informed their generosity. So, how was Israel to show generosity to the poor? I should have warned you. I should have said the front porch is massive, right? What did Pastor Phil used to say? The front porch is larger than the house. I should have said that. I didn't. A more seasoned preacher would have said that. How was Israel to show generosity to the poor? 
Here's the answer to sum up what we've said by generously loaning to those in need and remitting all debts every seven years. So generously loaning and remitting all debts every seven years, remembering that God had been generous to them by rescuing them out of Egypt. That's just kind of a summary of everything we've been saying up until this point. Let's ask and answer our second question with just a few moments we have remaining, okay? And then hopefully you're in a community group to be gathering in a house maybe to discuss this further. Second question is, how are we, the church, to show generosity to the poor? And this could be a couple of sermons in itself, but we're not going to go there. I'm gonna give you three ways. Three ways that I think as we interpret this text in its context, as we understand what God is instructing of his people Israel in Deuteronomy 15, and as we interpret it through the lens of the coming of Jesus Christ, three ways that this text actually informs us as followers of Jesus right here in East Tennessee in the 21st century. First, first, we are to show generosity to the poor by remembering, don't miss this, this is the foundation, by remembering the extravagant generosity God has shown us in Christ. That's the foundation upon which any Christian generosity worthy of the name is built. So we are to show generosity to the poor by remembering the extravagant generosity God has shown us in Christ. If Israel's rescue out of Egypt was a sufficient basis for generosity to the poor, how much more our rescue through Christ out of sin, death, and hell a sufficient basis for generosity to the poor. The generosity shown to us in the gospel really does dwarf the generosity we find exercised in Deuteronomy 15 among the Israelites. Consider the situation of Deuteronomy 15 with me. Because of sin, because of sin, staying with the imagery of our text, we owe a debt to God we could never pay. And so this fits, doesn't it? We're debtors to a creditor and the debt is insurmountable. In fact, it's eternal, it's infinite because the one against whom the sin was committed is eternal and infinite. So what is the gospel in this context? In Deuteronomy 15, God, the creditor, becomes the debtor in the person of Christ. You follow this? We are the slave taken captive to a debt we cannot pay. It's owed to an eternal God. So what does God do? He doesn't merely grant remission. He does that. But how does he do it? He certainly doesn't exact it of us and yet it's paid. He does it because the creditor, God himself, as it were, becomes the debtor in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lives the life we cannot live, did not live, would not live. Dies the death we deserve in order to pay the price that we owed 
is buried and is raised in glorious power from the dead, all for the purpose of granting us remission. So as a Christian, we read Deuteronomy 15 and we see a God who becomes the slave to rescue slaves, who becomes the debtor to rescue those in eternal debt. And our generosity as the church must be motivated by this reality. When we get this, we are no longer tight-fisted, but we're open-handed. And so Jesus says to his disciples, for example, in Matthew chapter 10, I'm going to quote the King James Version because I really like it here. Freely ye have received. Freely give. And I find in my own life, the more forgetful I am of my redemption in Christ, the more neglectful I will be to show generosity to others in need. But the more I remember and meditate on the generosity, the extravagant, eternal generosity God has shown us in Christ, the more I am positioned and postured and made eager to be an instrument of generosity in the lives of others. So friends, if you do not yet know this generous God, don't leave here without coming to know him. If you do not yet know the Savior who for your sake became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, then embrace him in faith this morning. If you don't yet know the God who, while remaining truly God the Son, became truly human, wonder of wonders, gave up the wealth of heaven for the poverty of earth, took on our debt by means of his life and his death, and was raised in glorious power on the third day, securing the remission of debtors like us. If you don't yet know this God, surrender to him this morning. If I can use the imagery of Deuteronomy 15, As it were, let the all of God himself be run through your ear into his own door. Become a member of his household because there's no better place to be than a slave to the infinitely benevolent God. Being free without him, free without him, is far worse than being a slave with him. Embrace Christ this morning and seek to serve him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If that's where you are, would you stay afterward and have a brief conversation with us? We want to come alongside of you and pray with you. We want to see the ways in which we can help you serve this gracious God who is all the above, right? The creditor who became a debtor, the slave owner who became the slave. He's all of the above for us and for you. Stay after and talk with us. And as you walk out of these doors on the left-hand side, as you walk out immediately to the left, just before you leave this building, on the right-hand side, there's a room called the Crossroads. 
And if you'll go in there, there will be a pastor in there just after the service to talk with you and pray with you and see how it is he might come alongside of you and you alongside of us to serve this gracious, generous God. That's the foundation. That's the foundation. Remembering the the extravagant generosity God has shown us in Christ. But let me give you two more briefly. Secondly, we are to show generosity to the poor by prioritizing the needs of believers while still meeting the needs of others. Let me say that again. So with the foundation of the gospel, we are to show generosity to the poor by prioritizing the needs of believers while still meeting the needs of others. And this is consistent with Deuteronomy 15. Paul will say it this way, Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And then he says, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. There it is. So there's this prioritization of the household of God. As Christians, as a church, we are not to overlook our own household in order to serve those outside of the household. We are not to neglect our own members out of love for those who are not members. That's not the answer. No, the answer is that we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. We are to prioritize the needs of our people, members of this church and believers in Jesus Christ. Through that prioritization, serve as a testimony to those outside of the church and then also out of that prioritization, go and meet the needs of other people outside of the church. This has always been the way the church has functioned since its early stages. And so in the spirit of Luke 10, as we're prioritizing our own household, the people of God, we also are not to be found quibbling over the identity of the neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Right in the parable of the Good Samaritan. But rather we are to seek to be faithful and generous neighbors to others. Third, this gets really practical, but I think it's consistent with what we find throughout Scripture as texts like this are reflected upon, we show generosity to the poor by working hard in order to have opportunity to give to others. This is thoroughly biblical. We show generosity to the poor by doing our best, right? It's all with the understanding that we're limited. We've got to trust in the sovereign hand and sovereign timing of God but by doing our best to work hard in order to have opportunity to give to other people. This is different, isn't it, than working hard to amass a fortune on earth. And so there are a couple of passages you may write down. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, when the apostle Paul actually makes the comment, when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Strong, isn't it? there were evidently Christians who were idle, refusing to work. Not that they were incapable of working, they were refusing to work. And Paul says, look, if they don't work, they don't eat. That's one way to encourage people to work, by the way. But on the other hand, he exhorts those who have more than enough in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Here's what he says. As for the rich in this present age, Here's what I want you to tell them, Timothy. Charge them not to be haughty, arrogant, 
nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So everything you have belongs to him. Then verse 18, he says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, notice, and ready to share. That's the posture of the follower of Jesus Christ. As John Wesley said, we mentioned this last Lord's Day, to gain all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. And that's what the Apostle Paul is exhorting here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. And by so doing, this person stores up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, as Paul goes on to write. And so we are, as Christians, to work hard to gain material possessions, but not in order to store them up and to amass a treasure on the earth, but in order that we might be a conduit of God's generosity for others. I mentioned this last Lord's Day and maybe the last couple of Lord's Days. And we could go on and on. So many of you do that very well. But that's a bit of a change, isn't it? From the American mindset of getting all you can, canning all you get, and sitting on the can. This is more like getting all you can so you can give all you can out of the generosity God has shown you in Christ. Okay, well, we need to wrap up and you're going to be hungry before too long. Some of you said that was 30 minutes ago, Pastor. We've observed that Israel was to show generosity to the poor by generously loaning to those in need and by remitting all debts every seven years. They were to do this because they remembered that God had been generous to them. Secondly, we've concluded that we are to show generosity as the church to the poor. First of all, by remembering God's generosity to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, by prioritizing believers while still meeting the needs of others. And thirdly, by working hard in order to have opportunity to give. On March 22nd, 1790, just a few years, 1790, there was a visiting pastor at a brand new Baptist congregation, just founded. And the pastor's name was Zenos Trivet. I would love to be named Zenos. <laughs> and Zenos exhorted this newly formed congregation concerning their duties as Christians. And as church members, and it's a short book. It's one that I've actually, just to be frank, I'm praying through considering being one of the ones we pass out because it's so very accessible. Two of the duties, he, he identifies 16 duties for the Christian. Two of the duties, Trivet highlighted, were the related duties of sympathy and generosity. Sympathy, according to Trivet, is feeling for our fellow brothers and sisters when they experience trials. It is, as it were, Romans chapter 12, weeping with those who weep. It's feeling for them and for one another. However, Zenos goes on to say that generosity is the refusal to allow our commitment to one another end with sympathy. Feeling 
for one another isn't enough, he says. Sympathy is insufficient. Listen to what he writes. Our love and sympathy can never be made to appear genuine without generosity. And then he goes on to reflect on the generosity that Christ has shown us. He says, how deplorable had been our case, brothers, if Christ had only pitied us and not added, don't miss this, not added participation to his compassion. We would have been forever, he says, miserable. Follow the example of Christ then church and to your sympathy add generosity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are beyond grateful that in Christ Jesus, you have added generosity to sympathy. We're thankful that generosity takes on flesh to rescue debtors, to rescue slaves. We're thankful that you freely give us all things in Christ, that we are co-heirs with Christ. We've gained all things, everything. And we have no want eternally. And we're thankful that now in Christ Jesus, you call us to demonstrate such generosity. Though it may pale in comparison to yours, such generosity to others. Father, I pray that you would create in us, as a church, generous hearts. To those who are impoverished, to those in our midst who have needs and who will surface as those in need and those even outside of our church so that through such displays of generosity, more and more might come to know you and treasure you through Christ your son. It's to that end and for your glory we pray these things and all God's people said, amen.